Boy, what a, what a wonderful song service. Amen? Amen. What, what a great communion, Marks, Chase. That's fabulous. Fabulous. Well, if uh, you're a visitor with us, we're glad you're with us. We hope you find it easy to worship with us. And if you're looking for a church home, welcome home. We would love to have you here at every opportunity. We are a loving church convicted in Christ, and we want you to be a part of this loving church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, can it happen again? We've been on this for 16 weeks, and really what I want to do today is I want to take you all the way through again, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28. Now, Mike, I've been working on this, and I've got it down to two and a half hours. So you just hold me to that, okay? Really what I want to do is just review everything we've learned quite rapidly, really. And then I want to make a point at the end. It has been fun. I have enjoyed learning in the book of Acts. I can't tell you how much I've learned in the last 16 weeks studying and being in the word of the book of Acts. So let's hold on to our hats, try to keep up, and we'll rush through the first 27 chapters of the book. We started with asking, what made this early church so attractive? What did they have that people wanted to have a part of it? And we decided, well, they were focused on the teachings of the apostles about Christ, and they had all things in common, and they shared in the fellowship and were devoted to one another. Scripture says they didn't even look at possessions as their own, but as stewards of over those possessions, how to use those possessions for the Lord and for the community. They worshiped all the time in homes and temples and synagogues. They worshiped continually. And then we moved on, and we, we looked at fortress versus posse. Do you remember that? No. There's some heads going up and down, yes. We asked, does your church look more like a fortress or a posse? Does it look like a group going out to put down evil, to, to rescue people, or does it look like a fortress trying to keep everybody out? And we decided that God uses people who don't obsess about past failures, that God sees, God's people see needs all around them. God's people focus on what they have, not what they don't have. And they make it all about Jesus. And they pray big prayers, big challenging prayers. If you're a part of this church and you're praying prayers, publicly or privately, make those prayers big. Challenge Jesus to use you in ways that he's never used you before, in ways that might grow this church and grow you spiritually beyond what you have ever imagined. Then we looked at cultivating transparency, courage, and servanthood. It took us three weeks to make it through this one. As we developed TCS, we said when we have the differences of opinion, we should openly find Solutions. Remember, some widows weren't being, some Hellenistic wi widows weren't being fed. So they came to a conclusion on how to solve that openly. 
And every body thought it was a great idea. They didn't try to hide the problem. They didn't try to push off the problem. They embraced the problem and they found a great solution to it. We also decided that through Ananias and Sapphira, we could tell that God hates lies and nothing, nothing puts the brakes or kills a movement like hypocrisy. And then we remembered we've got, if we're going to be the courageous people that we hope to be, that we must remember who we serve. Remember what Peter says, we must obey God rather than human beings. If we're going to make an impact on the world, I've got to remember constantly who I serve. And then we talked about servanthood has no place for victim mentality or the very idea of entitlement. You know, the worst thing that can happen is you walk through those doors and you think to yourself, what am I going to get out of this service? What am I going to get out of this gathering? When the first thing that you ought to think as you walk through that door is, how am I going to serve my fellow Christian? What am I going to do for the hurting, for those who need me to be Christ to them today? And we said, you know, servanthood, the idea of Christian servanthood can have no part of entitlement. We can never think, oh, I deserve this or I deserve that. Our focus has to be on others and what we can do for them. Amen? Amen. Divine appointments. I, I love this one. God, seizing God's opportunities. Those little times that God chooses an opportunity for you. And do you seize it or, or, or do you turn away from it? God could use discomfort to move us into mission. Remember that? Sto Stephen is stoned. And what happens to the church? They're dispersed. They, they move that. One act moves them out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then into all the ends of the earth. Philip doesn't know who or why he's on a road to Gaza. you got to love the story. The Spirit just says go, and he does. And next thing you know, he finds a moment to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. We've got to be willing to seize those opportunities, even when we really don't understand where it's going or why we're there. We need to look around and say, who can I be Christ to? We've got to remember also, and thanks for this great grabbing sentence, God can bridge all gaps, Chase. And he really can because there were not, there's never been two people more opposite than the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, right? They broke down all the cultural, all the socioeconomic, all the geographical, all the barriers to bring Christ from one man to another. And then we looked at God in a box, right? We like to put God in this safe box where we think we've got him walled in and and we understand him, right? And just when you think God's in a safe and predictable, he breaks out of that box. We saw this with Paul. He was the greatest known threat to Christianity of all time. He was literally going into other places to drag families back to Jerusalem to have them beat, to have them tortured, to have them blaspheme, and some even to death, he tells us. 
Or how about Peter converting that centurion, that Gentile? About converting the Jewish occupier of Jerusalem. And not only does, does he change this centurion's life, who is a God-fearer, he brings him to Christ, and not just Cornelius, but his entire household he brings to Christ. God's out of the Jewish box, right? And now he's going everywhere to all Gentiles. Folks, can you imagine the impact that this centurion would have had on the army in Jerusalem? Then we went to slow drift, something we can all, all if we're not careful, we can be guilty of, right? It is the slow drift. We don't focus on forms and patterns, right? We focus on Christ. Amen? We understand God purifies our hearts. Not rituals, not customs, or traditions. We don't, we don't and we shouldn't make it difficult for people to come to Christ. James, the half-brother of Christ, tells the Jerusalem council, he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. As we try to change northwest Arkansas, we need to remember that we shouldn't be making it difficult for people to come to Christ. The unexpected. Don't be surprised when God shows up in your life and does things that you never imagined he might do. Even the best of us miss it sometime. That was Peter. He's rescued from jail in the middle of the night. His chains fall off. He gets to leave the jail. He has to walk an entire city, the length of an entire city street before he comes to his mind that he really is being rescued. And i got to ask you, how many times has God rescued you in your life and it took you a few weeks, maybe months, or maybe even a year before you could look back on it and go, that was God working in my life the whole time. Or how about when Peter finally does get to John Mark to Mary's house and he knocks on the door and Rhoda comes to the door, Rosie comes to the door, and she hears Peter, and she goes back inside, and she says, Peter's been released for jail. The very, thing you've been, the very thing you've been praying about. And everybody says, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Folks, can I tell you, in your life, there are going to be times that you recognize God and Christ working in your life, the Spirit leading you to do things for God. And people are going to say, Ellen, you're just crazy. Don, you're out of your mind. Don't let that discourage you. Not everyone will recognize what's going on around you. You just keep working. Go back to the gate and open it. Peter's on the other side. And then we talked about perspective, another one of my favorite things. We talked about having a godly perspective about life. We, we see Paul. He, he's over in... He's over in Mass, or excuse me, he's over in Turkey, and he wants to go to Phrygia. He wants to go down to Asia Minor, and the Spirit keeps saying no, no, no. And he's already been to Lystra and Derby, 
and, and he's wanting to, to go a new place, but the Holy Spirit says, no, I've got something for you. Go where? Where was the call to? The Macedonian call. And he goes to Philip, and everything works out perfectly, just the way he always imagined, right? No. See, he wanted to do things, and the Holy Spirit said no, and he redirected him. But then when he gets there, when he gets there, there's not even a synagogue to worship in. And worse, he does an exorcism, and it gets him thrown in jail and beat half to death. And we today, if I send Levi to Africa, and in Africa, they take Levi, they arrest him, and they beat the hide off his back, and they lock him in stocks and chains, I'm going to see that as tragedy. And Paul saw it as opportunity, right? And because of that, he relabels tragedy as opportunity, and he saves the Philippian jailer and changes his life and his whole family's life. And then Paul goes to Athens, where we had the very uncomfortable discussion about modern idols, right? We think to ourselves, well, we don't have those today. Oh, yes, we do. Unfortunately, we've got idols all around us. We talked about the objects of our worship, right? How we sometimes worship power, title, prestige, popularity. How sometimes we worship money, material things. Sometimes it's food, drug, anything that really can master us. Paul tells the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not let anything master me. I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's saying, yeah, there's this huge freedom in Christianity. But the problem is, if you're not careful, not all those things are beneficial to you. And if you keep doing them before long, it will master you and have control over you. And suddenly... You've got an idol. Then we moved on to flexibility and perseverance. The ability to adapt to change, yet remaining steadfast to your goal. Man, if there's a, if there's a story that the churches of Christ across the world need to hear, it's this one. The ability to adapt to change, change yet remain steadfast to your goal. To bring Christ to the world. Paul did not give up preaching to the Corinthians, even when they forced him out of the synagogue. What did he do? He walked across the street to a believer's house, and he continued on preaching there. When he gets to Ephesus, he spends three months trying to convince the Jews there that Christ really is the Messiah, and not until they literally start to malign the way. They start to make Christianity look bad Does he leave there, but then he just goes and he finds a hall to preach in. And he preaches there. He stays with the brothers and sisters in Christ for three years in Ephesus. What persistence. Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to grow the church. Folks, we get upset when somebody asks us to move to a different seat. 
We get bothered when someone sings a new song. We get upset when the carpet is not the kind we had wished for. We get bothered when the air conditioning is not perfect. Are we really willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Christ? Building bridges. Man, this is one Keith needs practice on. Looking for ways to bring people together in a world that's naturally polarized. Isn't that the truth? Man, every time. I listen to Reuters News. Does anybody listen to Reuters News? Every time I listen to Reuters News, every morning I listen to it 15 to 20 minutes. And it's amazing to me what people can debate on, disagree on, and even draw up arms over. Come to blows over. We had a senator somewhere just the other day who they had a political discussion. He went and grabbed a guy and body slammed him. Come on. But that's, that's the nature of man, isn't it? It is to be polarized. And Christ is just the opposite. And Paul was king of building bridges from people who were different from different places to draw them together for Christ. We see the church staying in unity even when they disagreed. Remember, Paul comes back down out of Ephesus, and the people in Ephesus say, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be, you're going to be put in chains there. It's going to be bad there. And Paul says, no, the Holy Spirit's leading me to go to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Tyre, and they say the same thing. Don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit says, you've got bad things waiting for you in Jerusalem. Don't go there, Paul. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. The Spirit's leading me there. And then he goes to Caesarea, and they tell him the same thing. And it gets so bad, this disagreement gets so bad, that Luke finally writes to us and says, finally, when he couldn't be dissuaded, we just said the Lord's will be done. How about that? David, when you and I can't agree on the best way to accomplish the Lord's work, we can still be in unity, and you can still look at me and say, Keith, I think you're crazy, but the Lord's will be done. And we still love each other, and we still care for each other, and we're still in unity, even when we disagree about the best way to accomplish God's work. We talk a language people can understand. We had fun with this one a couple of weeks ago, right? Remember when I gave you a sentence that you couldn't understand and then I gave you the sentence you could understand quite easily? But you know, Paul talked Greek, Aramaic, and Latin all so he could move people to Christ. We need to talk in ways that are meaningful to people to bring people to Christ. We got to do what Paul did, we got to admit our mistakes. If we're going to build bridges between us and the lost, we've got to be willing to look at the lost and say, listen, this is where I was, and this is where I am now, and I got there through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we must tell our conversion story. If we're going to, if we're going to build some bridges, we've got to tell people, this is where I was, and this is what Christ has done for me. 
And this is how I go to sleep at night with peace. Peace that passes all understanding. This is my heart before Christ, and now I want to tell you my heart now is different because he takes hearts of stone and he makes them soft like flesh. Then we talked about shipwrecks. Man, everybody's going through a storm in life, has a shipwreck story to tell. Paul's no different. But how we deal with those storms is very important. We do what we can, right? When we're in a storm, we be proactive. We look at what we can do without. They threw things overboard. Sometimes to get through the storms in life, we're going to have to throw some things out that aren't necessities to get through the tough times. And we need to reevaluate constantly where we put our hope in life's storms and life's shipwrecks. I love this verse from the Psalms. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Well, how's that? 20 minutes. Johnny, write it down. That's 27 chapters in 20 minutes. Pretty good. You guys might make it to Wendy's before the Baptist. All right. Let's do what we've always done. Let's talk a little bit about geography today. We stopped in Malta. Remember? Shipwreck. We, we crash onto Malta. Everybody is saved. Then we'll go up to the city of Rome. And we will stop our series in the city of Rome. Well, a little bit about Rome. This is, you're looking at the Roman form. This is downtown Rome in A.D., in Paul's day. I almost said A.D. 100 because it's up there on the board, but that's when all these statistics come from. Paul was there probably somewhere right around 60 A.D., okay? So we've got a million-plus people. This is the first time that a metropolitan city has continuously held a million-plus people, okay? Now, yes, some cities grew and then went back, and in Jerusalem it said that during Pentecost that a million people would come to the city, but they would quickly disperse. But in Rome, a million people lived in this downtown area. They had sports centers kind of like we do today, and they were open for 240 days of the year for entertainment. This is not Circus Maximus in our picture here, but in Circus Maximus, you could hold a quarter of the entire city, 250,000 people in one Colosseum, and it was open 240 days a year to watch entertainment and the races, the horse races. Can you imagine that? And we thought Sports Center was never ending. There were over 46,000 reported apartments in Rome in the census that was taken in AD 100. And then you kids, you'll like this one. There were over 13, excuse me, 1,300 swimming pools inside this area. And Lance, you'll love this last one, along with my wife. I wish she was here to see this. There were 12 massive bathrooms, 
and one larger than Notre Dame Cathedral. Can you imagine? I got to tell you, with a wife who can't go halfway across town without to stop, she'd love Rome, wouldn't she? Juvenile says, the thunder of wagons in those twisting streets, the oaths of the draymen caught in traffic jams would shatter the sleep of a deaf man. I want you to understand, this is like a metropolis city of today. There are traffic jams, there are people cursing. They don't have horns yet, so they curse, okay, in the traffic jams. Open air, everybody's got a convertible, right, Don? So you know, they're all screaming and yelling at each other. We know that the wheels uh, were lined in steel and the, the roads were rock. So you got this cat scratching, just chalk scratching noise going on constantly around you. All right. Love wins. Now we're really to the meat of the story today. Love always wins. Paul lands on shore and does what Paul does. He serves people. So he goes and he starts picking up sticks and brush around and takes it to a fire to load fire on the firewood so they might warm all of the people, the 127 people on board. And a snake comes out of the bundle of brush he has and bites him. And all the islanders there go, oh, you see this guy's guilty of something. And the goddess Justice has bit him on the hand and he's going to swell up and die. He must be a bad guy. Uh, but guess what? Aldea, he doesn't swell up and die. He does just fine. And say, oh, he must be a demigod. Let's take him to the city official. So they take him and introduce him to the city official, and Paul does what he always does. He starts healing, and he starts his servanthood process, right? His father was sick. This is talking about the uh, chief official. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after, pray after praying, after a prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. But isn't that what Paul always does? Isn't he motivated at, by love to right wrongs, to help the hurting, to change their lives and tell them about Christ? Well, they, they wait the three months and get through the winter months, right? I mean, Paul told them not to sail. Now, now after they've shipwrecked, they're listening to Paul. So they wait until the bad season in the wintertime on the Mediterranean is over. They get on a boat and they go to Rome. When they get to Rome, Paul is in his own rented house arrest. The end of chapter 28, verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all whom came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Do you get that? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Not that it was coming, that it was here, and he was helping break it in to the world. And he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's doing what he's always done. Paul's doing what he only knows how to do. 
to proclaim the kingdom of God and preach Jesus. Folks, love wins. Love always wins. It is the same man who's gone through so much that says, Now I eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Paul's named off all these spiritual gifts you could have, but I want to tell you the most excellent way. Then he goes on to say it's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, I got to tell you, that is an incredible statement from a man who has had the snot kicked out out of him time and time again. Take a look. Take a look at his sufferings. Compare it to your life, and you tell me how it compares. He's been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. I don't know why he just doesn't say 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stone. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and the day in the open sea. Man, I can't stand to swim in the pool for more than about three hours. I start to shrivel up. Can you imagine a whole day and night in the sea? I've been constantly on the move. For the last 30 years, as we track Paul, for the last 30 years, the longest Mary he ever stayed at any place was Ephesus, and that was only for three years and three months. Can you imagine for the last 30 years of your life, you've constantly been on the move? I thought Anna was going to divorce me when I moved her 10 times in the first 10 years. I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. That one hurts. That one can destroy people. People who act like they're Christians, tell everybody they're Christians, but they're really not. And their opportunity in life is to put you down is to put you aside, is to make you look bad. And Paul gets past those people anyway. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and I've known thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Remember him in that, that jail in Philippi, laying in the stocks. When those come off, he has to put his garments on, right? He's naked, back opened up, bleeding, and there he is singing songs of praise. Besides everything else, I was faced with the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That guy, that guy says, love wins. Love never fails. If we'll let love motivate us, love direct us, love humble us, 
love will never fail us. Now, I'm not talking about that fleshly desire or lust of the eye or, or puppy love. I, I'm talking about unconditional love of God that protects, that trusts, that hopes, always perseveres. Can I get you to stand? Get ready to sing and pour out your heart and praise. Today, if you don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know the love of the Father or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, won't you change that today? Won't you commit your life to God today because His love never fails? Jacob.